Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering of the platform is a public speaking course called Teach the Geek to Speak. To learn more about it, you can go to teachthegeek.com. Again, that is teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Barkley Brown, and he is a systems engineer. I actually attended a meeting of the International Council on Systems Engineering in San Diego once. And I still don't really know what systems engineering is. So I'm really interested to learn more from, from Barkley as to what exactly it is and learn how he got into it in the first place. It's kind of one of those newer engineering disciplines. And he's also a professional speaker. So I'm really interested to learn more about his, uh, his public speaking exploits. Welcome to Teach the Geek Interviews, Barkley. Thanks, Neil. Glad to be here. So my first question, it, from the bit of research I did on you, I mean, I know that you were in systems engineering eventually, but your first degree is in electrical engineering. So what was the motivation to get that degree? Well, I've always been interested in electronics and computers and ham radio and so forth. And at the time, back way back then, that long ago, there were, you know, computers. I actually was one of the first people to take a computer engineering course, which was in electrical engineering, but it focused on digital electronics. So I was always sort of interested in computers and I took a lot of software courses too. So I've kind of been in computer hardware and software pretty much my whole career. Wow. You know, I, when I did engineering, I had to take a, a computer programming course my first year, first semester. And I'm glad that it was the only computer course I had to take because I was terrible at it. I'm glad there, there are people out there like you that had that patience to, to put programs together and, and work with them until they actually, you know, do what they're supposed to do. I just, I didn't have it. I also noticed that you got uh, an MBA. What was the motivation for the MBA? Um, probably that I was an entrepreneur for many years and, and didn't do very well at it. So I wanted to learn something about business. And, uh, you know, not that the MBA school necessarily tells you how to be a uh, successful entrepreneur, but it just seemed like the next logical uh, logical thing to do, you know, filling in part of the background. Yeah. And then I, I also, I don't know what, in what order you did it, whether you, you got a PhD first or an MBA first, but I saw that you got a PhD in systems engineering. So at some point, you know, systems engineering became something that was on your radar. So firstly, what is systems engineering and, and why get a PhD in it? Systems engineering is a engineering discipline, you know, alongside other engineering disciplines like electrical, mechanical, chemical, civil, software engineering, you know, things like that. But systems engineering is the discipline that looks at the system overall. So if you're going to build something really big and complex, like a satellite or an aircraft or a spacecraft or something like that, you need the electrical engineers to do the circuits. You need the software engineers. You need the mechanical engineers to bend the metal and all that. But you also need some engineers that are looking at the system overall. What are the overall system's requirements? What's the overall performance of the system? How are the different subsystems going to work together? Those are the systems engineers. So systems engineering really came, became prominent and became an uh, important discipline around the time of the space program. Uh, when, when that was around the time of some of the first very large computers, uh, you know, ENIAC and others. And, and so it was kind of the dawn of these big complex systems. And that's when you needed systems engineering. So it's been going strong ever since because systems are just getting more and more complex. You think of something like the Internet of Things, you know, all those 
gadgets you have in your house connected to Wi-Fi and everything, that all has to be looked at like a system. You know, so the what what we consider to be systems are getting bigger and bigger and invading all of our lives. Okay, but you you did go and get a PhD in it. So, I, would it have been possible for you to have worked as a systems engineer without a degree in systems engineering, or did you really need to get that PhD? <clears throat> Well, it's a good question. Uh, a lot of most systems engineers, in fact, virtually all systems engineers had another engineering background before that. They were electrical engineers or mechanical engineers or something first. And then later they got into this more uh, higher level. And by higher level, I don't mean like better, higher level as in higher level of abstraction, more more general, you know, uh, uh, abstract kind of uh concerns and, be, and became interested in systems engineering. So mo what most engineers do is they go uh, back and get a master's degree in systems engineering after their bachelor's in electrical or mechanical or something like that. And that's kind of the normal course. I already had two master's degrees at the time in other fields. And so I thought, all right, well, I don't want to, I could get another master's degree, but let me go ahead and see if I can get into a PhD program and, and uh, do that. Okay. PhD program, you really take the same courses as a master's program. You just tack on some additional research and creative uh, work of your own, you know, in a in the form of a dissertation. Yeah. For most of the people that I've ever talked to that got PhDs, at least when they started it, their goal was to become become a tenure track professor or at least stay in academia. Was that ever your goal or did you always think you're going to be in industry? Um, I, I probably thought I was always going to be in industry. I've done some teaching, of course, as a, a PhD, and even a lot of t in a lot of cases with a master's degree, you can teach as an adjunct professor. So I've done that at what, three or four universities. Still do that to, to some degree. Um, but the, uh, you know, I'm I'm a big believer in education, obviously, right? And I keep keep uh, pursuing it. Um, you know, the PhD helps you if you're going to be in academia, but it also sort of, you know, sets you apart. It's still not as common as master's degrees and things like that. So even if you're going to be in large organizations, I mean, I work for Raytheon Technologies right now. It's a big defense company. And I mean, many of the people that I work with have PhDs, you know, that are that are sort of in the more specialized areas and stuff like that. It's not something someone needs to do necessarily early in their career. I'm a big believer in, you know, going to work and getting started on your career and then doing the other your advanced degrees along the way, you know, one course at a time, gradual school, like Robin Williams <laughs> used to call it. <laughs> that's, that's good. Oh, okay. Can we get, because most of the people that I know that did PhDs, it was kind of a, a full-time thing where they that, that's what they did and they had to do their dissertation and all of that. I mean, when you did your PhD, were you still working or did you have to leave? Yeah, work I did a, I, all my graduate degrees have been uh, part-time, uh, you know, one course at a time. And, uh, you know, you just find programs that will work one, with you one course at a time and then you just work your way through it. And, it, I, you know, I was in no big hurry. And I wanted to keep working and keep doing stuff. And, and, and usually, a lot of times if you go to work for the right kinds of companies, they'll pay for it. So you're, you're working, you're making good money, and they're paying for you to go to school little by little, and you're working your way toward the next degree, you know. Oh, okay. I didn't even know that was possible with PhDs. Okay, well, that's, that's interesting. Sure. Okay. Most big companies will, um, will pay for advanced degrees in the field where it's going to help them. Some are even wider scope, you know. So it depends on the company and everything. But No, I mean, I didn't even know that there were part-time PhD programs like that. I've heard oh, sure. Okay. Yep. Okay. It depends yeah. on the school. And, you know, some of the very top schools, the programs uh, may, may be restricted to full-time students only, but there's still plenty of schools. You know, there's lots, lots of schools out there, you know? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, good. Good to know for sure. So, then, so at some point you become a systems engineer. Were you ever not a systems engineer when you, when you first started working or have you always worked in systems engineering? 
No, I, I started out working um, actually in, in the computer business, uh, in marketing and sales and technical um, consulting, that kind of stuff as a, a software, and then as a software engineer, software developer, software architect uh, for a while. And then I worked in kind of hardware and software together. And then for about the last, I don't know, 15 years has been more focused on systems engineering and on a field, a subfield called model-based systems engineering, which is kind of bringing new techniques, uh, techniques some, sometimes that sort of originated in the software development field, like object-oriented uh, thinking and modeling and so on, and bringing that to systems engineering. So I did that for IBM for about 15 years and now for Raytheon now for about three years. Wow. Okay, so you worked in marketing and sales, but you also had more technical type roles. What were the big differences that did you find in working in more marketing and sales as opposed to these technical roles? Well, it's a, a kind of a different way of thinking in a way, but um, you know, some some technical people feel like once they can learn to speak and communicate, you know, I know that's one of your one of your focuses as well as public speaking. But once you can learn to communicate, the technical people really have an easier time in sales roles because they can explain things. They understand things all the way down to the ground or they can. And that, you know, it's always, always frustrated me as a, a sales or marketing person when I didn't really understand the product. I understood it just at a very surface level and I could sort of give, you know, I could repeat statements that people had told me, right? But I didn't really understand it all the way down to the ground. I, for me, I'm always, I've have been someone who wanted to understand it down to the ground. So I really understood it all the way down. Not necessarily that I could go build it, but I understand it all the way down, you know? Right. So you, you worked in, in marketing and sales. You worked in, in more you know, computer type roles. You, you eventually 15 years in systems engineering. Was this all by design or were the kind of just happenstance how your career has really played out so far? I love the book by Cal Newport. I don't know if you've run across this before called So Good They Can't Ignore You. And what he talks about is it, it's not like there's some grand goal that you're working towards because very few people have that, you know, and come up with that early in life. And even if they do, it may not be the right one uh, for them as they grow and develop. But he talks about finding sort of the next adjacent area, you know, kind of seeing the next step. And the next step is near where you are now, but it's beyond. And it still is a little bit of a stretch. It's not an easy step, but it's a clear step. It's not like you go from being this to being that way over here. You know, you go from being this to being this, and then maybe this, and then maybe this, you know. And it's a combination, the way I've experienced it, it's a combination of opportunity and preparedness. So coming, circling back to the degrees, having those advanced degrees and another related thing called certifications, but having the right degrees and certifications give you more options or maybe enable you to take, take advantage of other options as they come along, right? I mean, my whole... Uh, a position at Raytheon as an engineering fellow, and it's actually kind of unusual for an, uh, them to bring someone in as an engineering fellow. But really the reason I, I could do that was I had the PhD in the field and I had the top certification in the field, which both are, th both are things that nobody asked me to do. Nobody required me to do it. I didn't really need to do it, but I did it back in my, I, my IBM days before that. And it kind of prepared me for this opportunity that came along that I didn't even imagine, right? So it's being prepared and then it's seeing the opportunities come along. Yeah, I think it's, just, it's definitely something to be said about, you know, sometimes you just, you're, you're working towards something and maybe at the time you're not sure where it's going to work, where it's going to, how it fits in. But then, you know, however, however many years later, bam, there it is, engineering fellow. <laughs> right, you know. Yep, that's right, that's right. <laughs> so It can happen. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to public speaking, when did you realize that public speaking could be of benefit to you? Eighth grade. 
Um, in uh, eighth grade, we had to do oral reports. And of course, most people were scared to death of doing oral reports. You know, they, they hated that, right? And uh, they, uh, the teacher said, you can do it on any subject you want. And I said, well, how long, you know, for the report? And he said, well, it should be at least 10 minutes. And I said, no, no, no. How long can it be? Like, what's the maximum? And he says, I, I don't know, you know, whatever. So I talked about antique cars, which were a hobby. And I had all these little models and all these charts and all this stuff that I just, it was a hobby, right? So I took the whole class period. I mean, I, the whole thing, right? I was still talking. They were asking questions. It was great. And I saw, hey, this is something. This is something I can do. This is something that's really cool to do. And I've been into public speaking since then in all kinds of different, you know, forms and venues and on many different subjects and things like that. Nice. So I also noticed from the bit of research I did on you that you're a professional speaker. When did you start doing that? And what topics do you enjoy speaking about? Well, it's, um, I don't know, it's a wide, it's a wide question. So uh, teaching is part of it. Uh, I started speaking, I guess, let me see, as, as re a real part of my profession back in my, even in my first job, in my first job, which was a big computer company. And I, I did a lot of, you know, the presenting and speaking and it became larger and larger groups and, you know, more featured, you know, kind of talks and, and things like that, right? And I've always done a lot of conference presentations and, um, you know, professional type things as well. And then uh, in the IBM days, I started to see, well, maybe I should even start speaking about speaking. So I started uh, trying to capture what I did, you know, and, and asking myself the question, well, is this just sort of talent? Is it, was it just sort of God given or something like that? Or are these things that I've learned? And if I've learned them, maybe I can teach others, right? And so I started speaking about speaking, right? And not speaking about speaking like in a general way, but in very specific ways, very specific techniques. And, and how do you actually go from being a, what I would say a, a good speaker to being a great speaker? You know, how do, how do the masters do it? What can you apply? Um, one of my talks is called Applying the Secrets of uh, Comedians and Stage Performers to Keep Audience Attention. You know, there's specific things that I'm not a comedian or a stage performer. Well, a little as a hobby, but not mainly. And but there's th specific things that comedians do and that stage performers do that work with audiences that you can apply in public speaking. And they're just they're techniques, they're skills, they're things that you can learn, you can develop. Nice. Out of curiosity, what's one of those techniques? Well, all right, let's see. Um, I'll give you one. It's the, maybe I shouldn't do this one because it's not so applicable now in our COVID days. Where we're all sort of presenting, sitting at our desks like I am now, right? But if you're presenting in front of an audience, one of the things people get wrong is their movement. So the rule is this. The space that you take in the first 30 seconds of your talk is the space you're going to have for the whole rest of the talk. So if you're standing there and you stand in one spot for the first 30 seconds of your talk, you're not moving the entire rest of the talk. You just won't. You're planted there like a tree, right? Now, so if you, it's just the way the human works, right? So what I teach people is in the first 30 seconds, take some territory, walk, you know, move across in front of the, of the screen, you know, to the other side, walk towards the audience, you know, moving back up. Very weird for people to see how to back up while talking to an audience, but with a little practice, it, it works out, right? And so you, you move, you sort of, it's sort of like marking your territory, you know what I'm saying? And, you, <laughs> and you've, you've kind of mapped this area and that's the area you'll be able to move in for the rest of the talk. And that adds interest and emphasis and so forth. You know, when you come towards somebody, and I'll, I think it could even work on camera, you know, if I, if I lean in and go like this, you know, that, that's a different effect, right? You say, oh, he's, you know, or you, you know, it, you lower your voice. That's another thing, working on pace and pitch and, and tone. 
And if I stop and say, you know, this is really the secret. See, I changed the volume, the pitch, and the pace all at once, and it changes the, the vibe of, of things, right? So there's all sorts of things like that. They're just a matter of uh, practice. I, I spent many years uh, having a great time coaching speakers for this uh, conference that IBM had, right? And I was the speaker coach, right? So any, any of the speakers that wanted coaching would come to me for sessions. And that was great fun because, you, you know, that's the best uh, thing, really, is you watch someone speak, and then you can see what to coach them on. You can see the right, you, you know, a master coach doesn't tell you everything you're doing wrong. A master coach tells you the one thing you're doing that, you, that will unlock the next level, right? And unlock the next level. I learned that from my old Kung Fu teacher, right? He says, I, I don't tell you everything that's wrong. I tell you the one thing that's gonna unlock the next level, you know, and take you to the next level. And uh, so you, you can do that with, with speakers. Every, everybody has their own thing with speaking that that they can improve yeah for sure i really like that i really like that that tip about you know the, with the first 30 seconds to move around so you can mark your territory kind of like a, a dog pissing on a fire that's right <laughs> so i call it move i call it move stop stand so that's if you watch professional speakers or any even an actor on the stage they don't just walk continuously they don't dance they're not just floating around right they purposely they move they stop and then they stand there and they speak for a bit of time from there and then they'll change and then they'll move and they'll stop and they'll stand there. So it's move, stop, stand, right? But what a lot of people end up doing, and I, of course, when I'm speaking and standing up, I can demonstrate all this, right? But a lot of people have this little dance step that they do and it's unconscious. They don't know it, but they're going like right, left, back, ball, change, pivot, you know, right, left. And it's the same thing, back, 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 same thing over and over and over again. <laughs> and it gets really uh, boring and awful, right? It'd be better to stand still. Gestures are another one. I'll give you one more on gestures, okay? So uh, some people gesture, but what's, what's hard, and this is hard to demonstrate again. I'm, I'm not used to doing this sitting at a desk on camera, but people will do repetitive gestures. You ever nobody, know somebody who this was their gesture? And no matter what they were talking about, they would use the same gesture. You know what I mean? I mean, how, whatever they were explaining, they, they would do the same thing, you know, and they did this, and, and it was just, you know, and they didn't know they were doing it. So make your, the first thing you have to do is get rid of all your gestures, right? So I, I have people deliver their talk with their hands at their sides. And that's really hard for one thing, right? <laughs> so they have to put their hands at their side, not rigid, just relaxed, but at their sides and give their talk and just talk, talk until they can do that, you know? And then once they can do that, you've erased all the automatic gestures. Then you can make your gestures purposeful. So if I'm going to make a point, see, that's a point, right? You know, that's a point. I'm going to make a point. Or if I want to expand something, I'm talking about expanding something, or I'm going to raise the level of teaching. See, my gestures are purposeful. They go with what I'm saying. You know, if you want to reduce the, you know, see, I'm reducing something, you know, so you make your gest gestures purposeful then. Wow. That's a, that's a really good tip, Barkley. Thank you for, for offering that. You're right. When it comes to the gestures, they really should be purposeful as opposed to you just flailing your arms around like like a bird <laughs> that's right they're just flailing like, come on man the other the other disease people have you can see it here is they have their elbows pinned to their sides so all their gestures are like this they don't ever move they don't ever move from that it's really kind of kind of comical to watch and so the other thing you get from stage performers is you want to scale the gestures to the audience so if, if I'm, if we're just talking one-on-one -on -one and we're standing, you know, socially appropriate six feet apart, you know, my gestures are going to be maybe about this big, you know, about the width of our shoulders, roughly, you know, something like that. So I'm going to be expanding something. I'm going to be, you know, trying to, 
move, you know, I'm, my gestures are small. But if I'm speaking to 200 people and they're quite far away, then my gestures need to be bigger. If I'm going to expand the scope, I'm going to expand the scope. Now that looks weird for you and me right now. But if I'm in front of 200 people or 600 people or whatever, it is, this is completely natural. And I'm going to raise the, the bar, you know, see, and I'm, I'm going to expand my gestures f based on the situation. Yeah. You see performers do this all the time, actors and whatnot. Interesting. Yeah. The same concept, by the way, as makeup. You ever notice, yeah, have you ever seen a, a stage performer come down off the stage after their performance and, and seen them up close? Their makeup looks clown-like. It's crazy. You know, it's way overemphasized, way too much eye makeup, way every, everything, big, bright lips. But at a distance, that looks natural. See? So it's, it, makeup is the same thing. Now, I'm not saying to use makeup, but it's an illustration, right? In other words, the right makeup for like one-on-one -on -one is different than the right makeup for at a distance in a big auditorium. And the yeah. same with gestures and the same with your voice, by the way. Interesting. You know, I never, never really thought about the makeup, maybe because I've never worn some myself. But That's I right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same concept. That's yeah. right. Yeah. But yeah, you're, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right about the, about the gestures kind of being having to adapt them based on the, the medium. So yeah, if you were yep. talking to a computer, you don't want to use gestures that big because your hand actually goes out of the screen. So right, exactly. It looks, it looks <laughs> unnatural. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, you're from here, this is, Yeah, this is very kind of up close. It's like a one, this is what's funny, and I haven't thought about this a lot. Maybe I should and, and do some things on this. How do you apply these techniques when you're online? Because I may be speaking to a thousand people right now, but my gestures need to be small because of the medium. You know, so your point is good. My gestures are going to be unusually small for a group that size because of the way we're doing this, you know? Yeah. So I got to readjust, but, but some stuff you still can scale. You can still scale your energy. You know, uh, people that are speaking to a large group, they uh, put more energy. It's hard to describe, but you put more energy into your voice. It does not necessarily louder, but more energy, you know, more intensity. If I were to get more intense with what I'm saying, see, I'm not getting, I'm not louder here, but there's a lot more intensity in what I'm saying, right? You feel it? It's very different energy than if I'm just talking like this, which is the same volume and the same kind of pace, but the energy is different. Yeah, right? for sure. So you start playing with this stuff and then you, and then once you can explore your own range, then you can apply it, you know, then you can use it whenever you want. Absolutely. When it comes to the, the presentations that you put together, do you have a process for doing that? And if so, what is it? Um, the, the, the public speaking, when I teach it, I teach a whole series of techniques. And we just went through in brief a couple, maybe three, four, five of them there. Um, so that's kind of the background. That's kind of the general instruction. And then from that point on, it's whatever makes sense for that person. You know, if I get a chance to see someone present, uh, and coach them, then I can do a lot more good because I can see what's going on, right? And I can see how they're coming across and uh, whether they're reaching people. Things like eye contact, you know, that's another one, right? How do you do eye contact? Everybody knows you should make eye contact, but what does that mean? And that's really hard with a camera. You know, that's, that's, I'm probably not even that, that good at it, right? Because I keep looking around and stuff, you know. But eye contact, you, you know, some people scan, you know, they're in a group thing like this and they look at everybody, you know, they kind of like a lighthouse, you know, they're going back and forth and, or other people lock into one person, right. And, uh, they, you know, they lock into one person or something like that. But the, the trick is to make eye contact with one person for a certain amount of time, then make eye contact with another person for a certain amount of time. Usually that's between two and 10 seconds. If you go longer than that, it's weird. Right. <laughs> so I, I contact with this person. And then I'm going to come over here and I'm going to talk to this person. 
and you, you'll see masters, you know, speakers that speak to audit to uh, coliseums full of people, 10,000 people. But you have the experience, they're talking right to you. It's because they're doing this kind of thing. You know, they're talking to one person with times 10,000, you know, to that one person as a representative. Of, I'm not saying it very well, but, you know, as a representative of the 10,000. So everybody experiences being talked to as an individual. Yeah. 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 That, that, that makes sense. Two to 10 seconds for sure. When it comes to also speaking, do you ever get nervous before giving your presentations? And if so, how do you deal with your nerves? It's yeah. Nervousness is, is, is a vague term. Um, sometimes nervousness is uh, excitement or anticipation. And there, there are a lot of times when I'm have that kind of energy, that kind of, you know, thing, but it's because I really want to do a really good job, you know, and I'm like, well, what, what, you know, how can I maximize everything? And I'm, I'm like a crazy person if, if, cause I, I'll come into the room ahead of time, make sure everything is set, make, check the sound system and all that. Most speakers don't do that. They just walk up and they're like, is this on? Is this a, hello? Can you hear me? Okay. You know, shh, is this right? All right. Well, um, hi everybody. Uh, you know, I'm here and they start off that way and they've already lost most everybody. You know, you don't want to start that way. You want to start right off. You practice your, you know, if you do anything, practice your first couple of sentences and just nail them, you know, have those down cold. You walk up and you walk up to the group, you look them in the eye and you say, have you ever noticed that comedians don't laugh? <laughs> See, okay. so something, I just made that up and something like that gets, gets, they're into you. They're like, okay, I, maybe I noticed that, maybe not. Why do you, you know, what's good, you know, you're ready for, okay, now what, you know? Right. So you, you bring them in like that. Nice. Yeah. That, that was great. I forgot your, now I forgot your question, but did I answer it? No, you asked, um, <laughs> you said about nerves. You said <laughs> it, can be, it can be the same thing as excitement. Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, an old speaker coach I, I learned from early, you know, if you have actual fear, that's actual anxiety and fear, a lot of times you can trans, tra uh, transform it or, or move it, you know, channel it by gripping something really tightly. So if you take the arms of your chair on, you can't really see the arms of this chair right here, but I'm just grabbing the arms of the chair. And if I squeeze them really hard, it channels that anxiety into that. And you can't tell I'm doing it. You know, I'm squeezing as hard as I can on these arms of this chair and you can't really tell I'm doing it. So it's not noticeable, but when I let go, then it, it, it's a little bit of relaxation. So that can be a little bit technique, but a lot of times that nervousness is because their people aren't practiced. Here's another thing. They don't know enough. You should know 10 times as much about the subject you're going to talk about than you need to. 10 times more than you're going to say. If you only know as much as you're going to say, you're stuck. You're on a really narrow little rail like a tightrope and you can't fall off because that's all you got is that what you're saying, right? If you know 10 times as much, you got freedom. You can, you, know, you can probably tell I know way more than 10 times as much about public speaking as I need for this interview. So I can just roam around all over the place. I got plenty to say, and you know, I'm not worried about what I'm going to say. Right? If you're worried about what you're going to say, the, the cure for that is preparation, right? And so you're not, you don't have to worry about what you're going to say. Yeah, for sure. And, and also, if you know 10 times more than what you're going to present, you're probably not going to be as nervous when people ask exactly. questions because you know 10 times That's more. That's right. You got 10 times more. That's right. And you can be also, you can also be the politician. You can answer the question you wish they asked instead of what they did ask. <laughs> That's what that works. Talk about what you want to talk about. Look, you're the speaker. You yeah, know, you sure. get to talk about what you want. 
<laughs> yeah, they do do that, don't they? <laughs> yep. Well, this has been real interesting uh, learning more about you, Barkley. Is there anything else you'd like to, to add about perhaps about things that you're working on? Uh, not really. I think I would just encourage, I know your kind of mission here is teaching geeks, right? And I think geeks of anybody, geeks, one thing that geeks are is they're smart. You know, if they weren't smart, they wouldn't be geeks, right? So geeks are smart and geeks can learn and geeks actually, actually like learning. And my encouragement is to consider some of these things that where you may feel it's just not you to be a public speaker or to be a communicator or to be a, a, a presenter or a writer, whatever it is, right? That you feel that's not your, your skill set, right? Those are just things to learn. They're, they're as easy to learn as learning Python or learning whatever else you, you've learned or learning electrical stuff or whatever you're a geek about, you learned a lot about. You can learn a lot about that stuff too. And it's just, and, and now of course the learning resources are everywhere, you know, but all those are skills that can be practiced and learned just like learn to play tennis or something. And uh, it doesn't take much to get better. In fact, you don't have to be better, the best in the world. You just have to be better than a lot of the people around you and you're going to do great. <laughs> right. And hopefully, yeah. that's, hopefully that's 10x more. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There you go. Yeah. yeah, for sure. How can people get in touch with you, Barkley? Um, LinkedIn is probably the easiest way. Uh, maybe the way you, you found me. I think, I think I'm the only Barkley Brown out there. You'll see, see me work, uh, listed with Raytheon as uh, you know, working with, with Raytheon. Excellent. Well, everyone, that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson, founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering is Teach the Geek to Speak. It's an online public speaking course. You can learn more about it at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thanks, Barkley. Thanks, Neil. Well, everyone, that marks another episode in the can. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like these episodes and want to support Teach the Geek, please subscribe, share, and like on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Or on all of them. Also, if you prefer to watch the episodes, head on over to the YouTube channel at youtube.teachthegeek.com. Until next time.